Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight shines on an episode from about a year ago, my conversation with photographer Harold Sherrick. Harold joined me to talk about A Pig's Tale, a book he co-authored, which tells the story of the legendary bootleg record label Trademark of Quality. A Pig's Tale follows the adventures of the label's founders in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Trademark of Quality was really the first bootleg record label of its kind, spawning many later imitators. From the end of the 60s right through the mid-70s, the label released groundbreaking bootlegs from Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, and countless others. A Pig's Tale tells us all those stories of the releases, the cast of characters, and includes beautiful images of all the records. Harold takes us back to a freewheeling time in an industry just on the cusp of corporatization. I'm happy to resurface this conversation to you. Enjoy. I have to tell you, I thought I was going to need a lot longer to read the book. And it was just, I picked it up, I think, Friday. And I think maybe by, by Saturday evening, I was done. Like, I couldn't put it down. It was so much fun. It brought back so many memories. It's pretty crazy. Pretty crazy oh, time. Untimed. Yeah. It's funny because... People that like those kinds of things, people who collect music or like to find the bootleg or the unreleased thing or the just the completest, whatever, however you want to call that right. type of fandom. And then you think about that era. You know, I'm a little younger than sort of the first generation of that. So for me, it was more late 70s into the 80s. There was always that one record shop or that one place that had either the stuff, if you could go find it, or if you knew how to ask, it would magically appear. You know, I, I can connect with that sort of feeling even now. Such a fun, like, just vibe aspect aesthetic to, to finding that stuff and to sort of like, now you're in the know. And even if nobody else gave a shit, like, you had the thing. Absolutely, it was because it was so, you know, it was so exclusive then because, you know, who was doing that? <laughs> We're the one that started it and everybody followed us. And obviously it was known as, quote unquote, the underground, because that's really what it was. We were doing everything that the labels weren't doing. And then they got a little mad at us after a little short time. And it mushroomed after, you know, once we started in summer 69, after Bob Dylan's thing, it really took off. We were obviously surprised ourselves because we didn't anticipate that. We were just doing it for ourselves because we were lovers of music and had unreleased music that we could get, whether it was live or studio outtakes. And when we saw how much it caught on, it just, I don't know, it just, we just made it up as we went along, so to speak. And then Big Man started doing it. There's a lot I want to unpack over the, over the course of our conversation. But one of the things that struck me when I was reading the book is it's a notion I've had before, which is there's always been this fine line between sort of the illicit and the legitimate music business. Right. And I think about things like what the distributors used to do, say, with cutouts and, you know, selling them sort of out the back door. Or you mentioned the in the book, you guys mentioned how some of the pressing plants used to do overruns and not count them. And yeah. so it was these people that had one foot in the legitimate record business, but also had little sort of side hustles. So I say that to set up this question, which is, there were a few instances where you referenced legitimate characters, 
producers, engineers, people who helped. And I have to tell you, um, there were a couple of instances in particular where I'm pretty certain that I know who you were talking about. Both I know because of the history, but like literally know the people. And I don't know if I, you know, can we have that conversation? Can you talk or can you talk more broadly about that notion of where those aspects of the music business sort of collide and overlap? Yeah, we can talk about it to a degree. That was the whole idea of the book. We had to remain guarded a little because we just had to protect certain people and our sources, even though to this day, I know it's been 50 years since it started, but there were people that just really didn't didn't want their names mentioned and this and that. So that's why we had, had with all the pseudo names and things like that. But we left the clues there in the story. You know, I'm sure you knew by reading it already that you could figure out certain people who was who. Because if, if you knew the scene and you were involved, you knew who we were talking about. It's just that we couldn't mention certain or didn't want to mention certain people by name because some people are around, but some of them aren't. Some of them are gone. And that's one of the reasons why we mentioned to some of the producers and the engineers, because a lot of those guys have passed on. And so when we did it together, we talked about that. And I said, you know what? It's not going to matter right now because these guys are gone. So it's not going to put a blemish on their reputation. You know, yeah. it, what, what happened at the time? I mean, we were surprised was, and Pigman was surprised when it was happening. You know, how we got the, we got the cooperation and the help and the favors that we got at the time. The scenario that comes to mind in particular was the producer and artist manager who helped around liver than you'll ever be. I'm pretty sure I know who you were referring to. Um, I'm trying to think who what that was. I'm trying to. They were they were affiliated with the artists that you know worked with the chickens on stage. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, you've kind of figured that out. I think so. I, you know, I'm very hesitant to say names because you were so hesitant to. So. Well, you can mention it yourself. And I, <laughs> but yeah, it, the clue there was the vocalist that to kill the chickens on stage and this and that. And I'm sure you know who that is because you know, somebody the other day had mentioned to me and asked me, so was that Ozzy? And I said, no, it wasn't no. Ozzy. It I, would, I would venture to guess he was an American, perhaps from Detroit area. Of course, of course. I even think I know the Toronto connection, to be honest with you. You mentioned, you know, and so in the book, just for the benefit of our listeners, after the first sort of success that Pigman and the crew had with Great White Wonder, which was a Bob Dylan bootleg um, that sort of started the whole thing, one of the next big or the next big thing you guys worked on was the Stone 69 tour and the, the sort of infamous now classic bootleg liver than you'll ever be. I guess as part of that story, the mixing and mastering and the stampers, all, the, all that production help, you guys received some help from music industry insiders. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's fair to say. There were some people that worked in the thing, that were working with other artists that, yeah, that, that did help out a little bit. And they had access to professional equipment before you guys really sort of invested yeah, in your yes own Yes and no. Yeah, at times, yeah, we had access to certain things, or Pigman, I should say, had access to certain things. And yeah, we had a little bit of, uh, you know, under the cover help as far as putting certain things out and stuff like that. But everything was Pigman and, and the crew. And I was part of that when I was a high school kid at the time, you know, helping out. I don't know. It was just, it was something that was just happening and and we were fortunate just doing what we were doing and going along and it flowed pretty well. Obviously we were careful we weren't, you know, nobody was foolish and stupid because all the people that followed us, like Rubber Dubber, Wizardo, Blind Pig, a couple of the other, 
Well, all those people got caught fairly quickly because they let their egos get the best of them and they started bragging. And that was part of it. They gave interviews and they did certain things out and they said too much. And that's how come, as we call it in the book, that's how come the man was able to come down quickly on them because they didn't play it cool. You know, a lot of these people, they got too, um, how you want to say it, too starstruck or too uh, proud of themselves or something. And they opened their mouths to one too many times. And this is how, this is how those people got caught. Well, let me roll it back a little bit to sort of the beginning, or at least your beginning with the story. How did you come to be involved at the time? Like, you know, you mentioned you were a high school student. In the book, you mentioned that you were part of the delivery route. I was part of the crew, and and I was very, very tight with Big Man, very good friends. You know, I met him at at a record store that I was working at. I was in high school, but I was working part-time at a record store. And again, one day when I, I came in, going through the bins and obviously just doing my normal record store duties or whatever you want to call it, I happened to see the, uh, at the time it wasn't called Great White Wonder. This was the early stages when it just, they had just put it out and it was a double white cover, plain white label, nothing. And they had to stick a little sticker on the outside of the plastic, say Bob Dylan. And, and we were fascinated by this, never seen anything like it, you know, unreleased. And so I inquired and then I, somebody just said, oh, it's a, it's an unauthorized thing or it's an underground deal. I mean, we, this was all new to us, even those terminology. And I happened to meet Pigman when he came in and we hit it off right away and became really, really good friends. And I just started hanging out with him and he started saying, oh, you want to come down and help us out and see how it's done and whatever like that. And I said, sure. Jumped in the van and <laughs> went down to the pressing plants and picking up, you know, the, when the orders were pressed in the boxes, we started, I started loading them in the van and putting it stuff out and bringing it back and then distributing here and there in LA. I mean, not everything was in LA. Of course, stuff was the release debut of Liver Than Ever Be was, I think, Chicago, I believe it was. That's where really Pigman was able to get it out on uh, at the airport and <laughs> shoot it off to Chicago. And <laughs> I mean, it's an amazing story because again, nobody was doing it. And we were the ones that were deciding on where and when, how to get things out there. And Big Man was, he was, he was amazing. He was bringing it to the fans. And that's when it started. We started getting the write-ups. We got the write-ups in Newsweek and in Rolling Stone did a big, almost half full page, full or half page review of Liver and calling it the ultimate, so far the greatest live Stones album. And this is what set off Decca and London Records, they got a little irritated with that. So they wanted to rush release, get your yayas out. But that took them a good six, eight months before yayas came out yeah. because Liver was out in December of 69. And that's when we started getting all the excitement with that. Well, and to provide context on that for listeners, the shows were what in November. So you guys hustled. Well, two in one day, too. That's, if you read the story, it's two in one day. We did Oakland and then Big Man. And the crew, the guys jumped on a plane and shot down to San Diego, did that show. And that was literally the same time frame. It was almost two shows one day or a 24-hour period. And then after that, it was off to Phoenix. But those shows were done so well at the time. It really um, preserved and captured the excitement of the Stones' 69 tour. I mean, it really did. I mean, I still listen to that, that liver to this day. It's one of my favorite records. And I was at the L.A. show because there was two shows in L.A. And I was at the 8 o'clock show. Not the 11 o'clock show, but I was there. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. Well, you know, I don't think it would be an overstatement to say, I mean, first of all, that's generally considered like one of the first 
sort of modern rock concert tours in terms of being in arenas and be, being it's it's recognizable today to a concert fan as what a concert tour looks like yeah but i would also say it's not a stretch that particular bootleg played a very big part in the mythology of that tour like the i don't think you can separate how the esteem that tour is held in from the role that recording played in sort of contributing to the mythology yeah Exactly. No, everybody and everybody always refers to that too, because if you if you experience the '69 tour, not everybody always says, "Oh, get your yayas," because yayas was only New York. That was only the Madison Square Garden gigs, and even that, the mixes on some of that were shitty. It's, in my opinion, they did a couple of Mickey Mousing things with the mix, and I thought it was terrible. Not on not the whole album, but there were certain things that they did that they that we didn't do. You know, that Pigman didn't do with Liver. Liver was done the way it was done, raw and straight off. And you, you had that excitement. You had all that, that, the crowd thing, the whole bit. And it's still referred to to this day. People will say, Liver than they'll ever be. That was the 69 shows in Oakland. And those are some of the best shows people had heard. And so your involvement went from being sort of arms and legs and hands and feet. And then you started actually working like participating in some of the actual show recordings? Yeah, some things, not everything. There was all that, the majority of the stuff was done by Pigman. And I think he had a couple other guys. I remember them now, their names. But I participated when stuff was local, when stuff was close. And when did you start shooting? When did I start shooting pictures? I started shooting pictures in uh, 1980, as oh, far okay. as on a professional level, shooting photos and things. So what were the 70s for you? Nobody's were just going to shows. I was going to shows, but of course, at that time too, which uh, <laughs> I got married very young in the seventies, so that kind of stopped me from being a, <laughs> you know, the young single guy running around as much as I wanted to. You know, I did do, I did go to a few shows, obviously, but I wasn't as free as I was able to be. <laughs> but I started shooting at eighty, and and still to this day, I still shoot. I mean, I have a book out. I have a photo book that came out in two thousand nineteen. And I have projects going and I, I license my catalog now. I, my photos appear in a lot of documentaries and films and different, different things. So I'm happy about that. It's, it's paying off a little bit as far as just a little extra income for me. But I didn't, I don't do it just for that. I do it because that's, I've loved photography since I was eight years old. My father was a newspaper man and that's how I got into it when I was a kid. And so I've always loved black and white photography and I still shoot black and white film too, along with digital. But yeah, I, again, I've known Pigman since 69 and maintained a friendship with him for the last 50 plus years. And I'm the one that really said, especially talking with Ralph, I said, we got to get this story told and get it out there before we're gone. And before everybody else that, that lived in that time period is not around either because people want to hear this and people want to read about it. I mean, I, that's the way I look at myself now, not just doing the book, but as a photographer, I, I'm a storyteller. You, you got to capture a moment now. Because once it's, once it's happened, it's gone. It's just gone. I don't care about phone cameras and, you know, things like that. I'm talking about the real deal stuff. I mean, people that are serious about putting down a story, whether you write something with a photo or whatever you do it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a great uh, time capsule. I understand a little bit about some of the people that are no longer with us and not necessarily explicitly naming them because they don't get a say as to whether they want to be named or not. Right. After all this time, what's Pigman's, to the extent you know, like what's his sort of issue around being named? And I guess I have a two-part question. Did he 
you sort of allude to it, but did he end up having a legit career in music and entertainment after all of this? And, and is it that he's somebody we would know and recognize or insiders would know? No, I don't think so. He, he just, you know, he wanted to get out and he picked the time to get out because if you read the story, it was getting a little bit too hot at the end. And so he just chose to shut it down because also to not just that, it wasn't out of like fear, so to speak. It was part of it, but that was a small part of it. It was like the uh, music business was changing and bootlegs were not as exclusive and as, as exciting as they were in late 69 to like, you know, to like early 70s. After that, it just, it wasn't that. And the prices weren't the same as far as selling them. You couldn't, you couldn't get what we got originally, you know what I mean? They wanted to give much less and this, and it was more hassle because security and it wasn't as easy. Really, it became more of a headache. So it was, it was time Pigman just chose to just kind of retire, you know, just say, we've had a great run. Let's just, let's shut it down. And we didn't get caught or we didn't get anything. And that's part of the reason why he just chooses to, just to remain anonymous. And my partner, Ralph, and I, we just have to respect that. And, but he allowed us access to his archive, to the tapes and everything. And that's what we came in because we both helped him and knew him and stuff. But he allowed us to tell the story and to lay this thing out. And as we did, and we put everything out that was there. That's why the book is so big and so detailed because we put everything there. So the fans and the people could see it, you know, even doing the discography at the end of the book with all the catalog, all the numbers and stuff like that. It's a great it, reference book. Well, yeah, that's what we wanted to do is like be like half a half of a reference book and then the other half the story. And we succeeded because that's all people have been saying is, oh, my God, this is the greatest. I can check my stuff because let's face it. Big man was bootlegged too. <laughs> people yeah. took his stuff and they took it and copied his so sometimes you get a different thing and we can tell the difference because people have come up to us and say, hey, I've got a copy of this. Is this the real deal? Is this Pigman's pressing the first or is this we've had to tell people, no, you got, you know, you got something else. Somebody else got it and copied ours and like that. He says, sorry to tell you, but the hardcore people just eat it up. What did Pigman do after the label folded? Like what, what was his professional career? I really don't know because he was real. Like I said, he was kind of, kind of reclusive and he just, he went off and he lived up. I can't remember what it was. I think he's on some island off of Canada now or something. I can't remember. He's, he's, he's way away somewhere. You know, I'd hear from him occasionally, hi, how are you and stuff, but didn't know his location and I wasn't pressing him. We were friendly and we would stay in touch, but I never delved into that. I never tried to, uh, to pry into the, into his personal life. I was never badgering the guy saying, well, where do you live or what do you do now? I think the guy just wanted to get out. And I think he just wanted to be by himself and just, you know, isolated, so to speak. Did he leave the business with enough to not work? I, you know what? I think so. But don't quote me because I don't know for sure. But I think so. But he might have done something else too. Again, I, again, I don't, I, I'm not sure. And you and Ralph aren't pig men. No, 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 we're not. No, we're not. I'm, not. I'm just happy that I was part of it, a small part of it. And that's why we did the story. You know, I wanted to do the books, but uh, no, but I'm not Pigman. I honestly tell you, I'm not Pigman because I was Pigman. Pigman. No, no, I'm not really. I'm not. I'm laughing, but I'm serious. I'm not Pigman. <laughs> we'll be back with more Spotlight On presented by Osiris Media after this break. And now back to Spotlight On. 
It uh, it speaks to something you said early on, though, that like that that's a tremendous lack of ego, because 50 years later, where the stakes are sort of low, he could come out and say, guess what, world? It was me the whole time. Do a victory lap, be lauded by the bootleg collectors and all the Dylan fans like, you know, not to not to put too fine a point on it. But for a lot of people, those recordings mean a lot like that's that's an exciting piece of fandom for people. And he could definitely take a victory lap. Absolutely. He was just humble about it, modest about it. He's glad that everybody loved it. And he's a fan himself. But as well as Ralph and I, you know, we loved it. We loved being part of that whole scene and the thing like that. And this today, now, today in the business, his label has influenced all these other things. That's why Bob Dylan started calling his stuff for 1990 or whatever it was. He started calling it the bootleg series. And he was releasing all his old unreleased stuff that has been coming up. And that's a direct influence from us. And then Neil Young started doing it recently when he's releasing his old stuff. He called, they were calling it the bootleg series. So it's kind of an off tribute to us, even though they don't want to admit that sometimes, but that's what it was. A lot of artists do like to collect their own bootlegs though. And that's something you alluded to in the book that I forget what the story was. Maybe it was John Lennon or someone, but I, I do know that, that a lot of artists, they find them fun. They find them interesting. They find them reference material. Lennon was a huge fan of... Not so much. He didn't know about TMQ as a whole, but he had heard about a bootleg of the Beatles. The He thought it was the Beatles' Decca tapes, but it's the TMQ bootleg Yellow Matter Custard, which was a rough tape that Pigman got of the Beatles at the BBC. Remember, this was 20-some years before BBC was released legitimately by Apple. And there was a guy named Dan Morell, I think his name is. He was visiting their radio station, Howard Smith in New York, and they were talking about that. And I guess Lennon was going to be on the show or was on the show. And the guy called in and said, I've got a copy of Yellow Matter Custard. And John said, John heard that. And he said, oh, my God. He goes, I've got to have that. And the guy came down and showed him the bootleg. I came out of the station. I came down to the station. John looked at the thing. He said, i got to have this. He says, what do you want for it? And the guy said, well, he said, I want a butcher cover and I want you to sign it. And John says, you got it. John sent one of his people back to his loft in, on Bank Street in the village when he was there in 71, living there, to grab the cover of the thing, bring it back down to the station. The kid was waiting, and he brought it back, and he signed it, and he actually drew an, or a thing on the back, too. He drew an illustration, and he gave it to the kid, and the kid gave him the bootleg. John was in 7th Heaven, and the kid was like, oh, my God, look what I got. He's got it to this day. We have a, I have a picture of it. He, and then he wrote that note. That's what I put in the book. I found that little note he scribbled to McCartney stating, I have the Decca tapes, but in reality, he didn't realize till later it was the BBC. He thought he was getting a copy of the Decca auditions because the Beatles never got that. They did it in 62, but there was never a tape given to the band because they failed that audition. And But a later came out later, but that was John that of telecasts, the one that we put out with John and Yoko on the Mike Douglas. He had, he had a copy of that too. He, he said, Oh my God, I got to have this. And uh, so he had those two bootlegs and he always raved about them. He just, he loved them. The other person that was a fan of them was Jimmy Page. He's a big, a big record collector on his own, a big blues record collector, but he also collects different Zeppelin bootlegs and things like that. And we had tried, Ralph and I had tried to get him to write a forward or a thing for the book. And I contacted Ross Halfen, which is one of Jimmy's best friends. And Ross wrote me right back, like right after I messaged him. And he said, no, nah, Jimmy won't do it. I will say he is a fan of the stuff and he does collect. He said, but he won't go on record officially say, you know, this and that. But he did buy Blueberry Hill. 
which was our thing. Blueberry Hill was another big one we did. In fact, there was a bootleg documentary that, that was broadcast and done in England in 1971. And I watched it. It was on YouTube. And I watched it and they interview Peter Grant. And the interviewer mentions Blueberry Hill. And Peter Grant says, oh, yeah. He says, he said, yeah, Los Angeles Forum, 1970. And I said, yeah. And, and they said, well, how do you think that was done? And he said, well, I think it was done with radio transmitters. You know, like, <laughs> and we just laughed when we heard that. And the story that's not in the book that I can tell you that we didn't put in the book is when we went to do Blueberry Hill, we came down to the forum and Pigman and the crew, actually some of the pe people that they knew, the original plan was to, they were going to bribe the stagehands to put mics on the microphones on stage and the drums and mic the stuff so we could record the show. The balls. <laughs> yeah. And it almost happened. But here's the deal. Within a few days, we found out it was either a few days or a week before the show. I can't remember what it was because no unbeknownst to everybody else, we found out at the last minute that the forum is in direct line with LAX airport. And so if we had put those things in there and turned the thing on to record the thing, it was going to interfere with the air traffic controllers when the planes were coming in to land and take off. So you were going to use something so wireless. We were going to try to do that, but then when we <laughs> found out that it would enter, because that would bring the federal government in right away if they found, you know. So, so we opted out of that at the last second, and then we just did the routine as if you read the book, but there were no transmitters. Like, you know, we laughed when I heard Peter Grant say that in the deal. One of the other things that struck me about the book was just how beautiful the photography is. And did you do those shots of all the... I did, I did some stuff. I did some, and then Ralph did some other stuff, and we had, and then my publisher had, had done the rest. You know, we, we obviously, we all definitely worked as a team effort on this thing because it was, as you can see, the way the book is, it's so much information and so many things that we had to photograph and scan, print, and make sure. And I'm not complaining. I'm just saying it was such an undertaking that it was a team effort, but we all pitched in and we all put in a lot of hours and a lot of time to make sure everything was right. The, the photography really, um, to me, it took the book to the next level in terms of the respect and just how it honored the actual objects, you know, to see those master tapes or to even see the equipment. They weren't just little snapshots, you know, you could tell they were laid out and lit and just really beautiful. And, and, I don't know. It really flipping through the book. It's so sort of sumptuous to just flip through it and the and to see the glossy photos and and to see those tapes. I mean, it, it's it's there's something that jumps off the page. It's very exciting. Well, that's what we said. So you're saying what exactly what we said is that we wanted the stuff, whether it was the tapes or the tape box or anything like that. We wanted it to jump off the page and really grab the reader so they could look at it and say, "Oh my God, this looks almost 3D. This looks amazing." And that's what we really strive for. That's why it took us almost two years to really get this book together physically. It was a project that was probably six years in the making. Two years as far as when I got the, when we got the publishing deal from Stephen and we went ahead and just started this undertaking. But it was great. It was great. So for a character who does seem to be so ego free or who doesn't seem to need the public recognition, it's very interesting that he's kept the archive. Like there, there's something about it that's important or special to him to this day. Yeah. I mean, it is, it, it, it really is. And yeah, he's just, it's just been stashed away on his Island and he's just had it, you know, he's had it packed away after, 
after we did everything we needed to do as far as, like you said, photographing everything, copying things, this and that. He kept an archive of the vinyl too. He has one copy of everything, brand new, you know. And I think it's in the book, pretty sure it's in the book, but as as angry as Columbia didn't like us when we were doing it with Dylan. And of course, Dylan wasn't happy too, and Albert Grossman at the time, because Dylan's manager. But we sent them two copies of every bootleg that came out and they loved it. Just mind blow because people don't. And the Stones specifically, the Stones loved it. We had no problems with the Stones as far as trying to sue us. There was a record store in LA where that was one of the main places it was sold. And when the Stones were on tour in 72, you know, the Stones were there early. They'd wander around town before in between shows during the time. And Jagger came into the record store and he saw the bootlegs and the bands, the album. And he's looking at him and he's just laughing and he's getting such a kick out of the covers and purchasing a few himself. I mean, I have a tape. I have an undisclosed a tape I got from someone, some collector that was recorded without Jagger's knowledge, but it's Jagger meeting with a bootleg dealer. And I think it was the West Coast. I mean, the East Coast. I don't know the dealer's name because I was just handed this CD from a tape and it's Jagger meeting with this dealer and buying about 10 different titles from TMQ for himself and the band and the band because, and I have this whole thing and the guy saying, Oh, look, I got, uh, I got liver here and I've got, uh, you know, like that. And it mixes. Oh yeah. I want two of those like that. And he says, the guy, the dealer even asked me, he says, Oh, you, are you buying some for bill? And, and the, and the, and the guys like that. And it says, Oh yeah. Mixes. Yeah. He says, I need, I need one of each. I want to give one to each guy in the band. And so they were fans of a lot of that stuff. You know, Keith was the same way. They, they talked to him, mentioned about it. He would just kind of giggle about it, laugh. They were flattered, I guess. They didn't care. And they were so smart as businessmen at a time when not all artists were that they probably knew it just contributed to the mythology and to the, you know, just overall, it just contributed to the fan interest. And I, I have a hard time imagining that they'd be wildly upset about it. No, no. When the big man rode up to, flew up to Oakland on the commercial air, airline, he sat, you know, they sat behind Bill and Charlie or Billy McTaylor. Yeah. And their equipment was literally under the seat. Nobody knew that. And <laughs> it was just, you know, it was, it was great. It was great. Different times. Can you talk at all about your fandom? You know, it sounds like you started off because you were into music and you loved music, but it, it sounds like from some of the things you've alluded to that you're still a fan or that you've been a fan over time. And like, are you a collector? What do you like? Do you, do you keep an eye on the bootleg world? Sort of, how, how do you, how do you categorize your fandom? Yeah, I've been a rock and roll music fan since I was nine, 10 years old, since 64 when the Beatles hit. That was it for me. And I was a 10 year old kid, but I caught on to them, right? Like everybody else. It was the most amazing thing ever. And it just mushroomed because, you know, the British invasion as a kid, you know, I loved everything. But of course, when you're that young, I didn't have money to buy everything. I had a, I had an allowance and I had to do chores. <laughs> My dad says, Oh, do some chores and I'll give you your allowance. You can go out and buy a 45 or, you know, or saved up for an album. And I did, I did. And then I, you know, eventually build up a, a little collection. And when I got older, I was able to do more. And then I started working in the record store and getting more records. But yeah, I was a big time fan and going to shows. I mean, the Beatles was my first concert, which was Dodger Stadium, August 28th, 1966. That was my first show. And then a year, almost a year to the day, almost within a week, I was at the Hollywood Bowl seeing Jimi Hendrix open for the Mamas and Papas and Scott McKenzie. And from then on, it was just show after show as far as as many as I could go to when I was younger. And I, to this day, I am, I'm a collector, but I used to be a big collector. I used to have a huge Beatles collection. My wife and I both did, but before I met my wife, I used to have a big Beatles collection. 
And years ago, I had to sell off 95% of it because of money, because of finance. I had children. I have, it was a matter of survival. You know, I had to pay my mortgage. I had to do, and I got big money. My wife and I got big money for what we had because we had a lot of memorabilia. We had a lot of great records, imports, promos, posters. And unfortunately, I had to, we had to let all that, a lot of that, that go, majority of it go. I've kept a few things and I started collecting again in a small, small way. And I have a few nice things, some sealed things that I've kept sealed for 30, 40 years, whatever. But nothing like I used to have. I've got maybe three or 400 LPs and some singles and things, but I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, like, and I'm not a young guy anymore anyway. One reason why I don't have a lot either is because of, you know, when the time comes and I'm not around anymore and just my grandchildren and my children, they don't care about it. You know, they don't care about the stuff. And I've always told my daughter and stuff. I said, if something happens to me or whatever, and you have all this stuff that I have, I said, you don't care for it. Sell it and get the best you can for it. Don't give it away. Don't throw it away. Sell it, get the money. That could be your inheritance, whatever it is, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, can you tell me a little bit about your transition into professional photography? Like, how did that start? And yeah, what, you know, what's, uh, I mean, making a life in that field's amazing. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. I, it's like I said, it, I think I mentioned before, my dad was a newspaper man. He worked for the LA Herald Examiner. So he worked for Hearst. And as a little kid, I used to go down to the paper with him. And then as I got older, uh, just watching the newspaper come off the presses and stuff. And then I would go into the photographer's rooms at the time because they had a big office. You'd see the prints, you know, for the evening edition of stuff laying out people's on the photographer's desks, the sports photos, the crime photos, human interest, music. And I just got so into it as a kid. I used to pick up my dad's Brownie Jr. camera, my little box camera, and take pictures. And I couldn't afford a good camera until way later, too much later, but I always managed to get my hands on it, even if it was just, a, like I said, a brownie or a 126 camera or whatever, and take pictures and stuff. Once the 70s rolled around, I started getting better cameras, and then I just decided that I, I really wanted to try to start shooting music because I was always was at all these shows all the time, and I used to see the photographers down at the stage. You could see the flashes going off because in those days, there was no restrictions opposed to now. I was self-taught, really. I knew some well-known photographers. They would always give me tips and advice and show me what to do and settings and stuff. And then I took it upon myself. To, I, I had to learn. So it's like hit and miss when you start out. You know, every picture isn't going to be great. You're going to screw up and this and that, but you got to pick yourself up and keep going if you love it. And I did. I loved it. I love capturing a moment. Do you have any favorite photos of, you know, of artists or events that, that you say, well, I nailed it here? Uh, yeah, Neil Young. I did some really nice stuff with Neil but about 30 plus years ago. So I was shooting it by himself when he was on stage with just him and a good guitar. And, and he was just bouncing all over the place. And I was literally chasing him, like, I mean, running along the edge of the stage as he was moving and shooting like crazy. But then there were times where he stopped and just the intensity of him just like almost bashing the guitar as he was playing and his teeth were gritting, you know, the whole bit. And the harmonica thing was hooked up on him and he was just, you know, going off. He stood there for about a good minute or so in front of me. And I was literally probably four feet away from him, whatever, three foot. And I just set the camera on there and I was just blasting away, getting these great sequence shots of his hand flying up when he was hitting the cords. And that's one of my favorite when I shot him in 1990. And then another one I did that's really good that stood out that I got some really nice write-ups on and stuff was, was Tori Amos. I shot her mm. in six. I got an amazing shot of her behind the piano, almost like a, an orgasmic type shot because it's just her with her head back with her eyes closed and her hair. And you just see the mic, but you just see her 
And she's just in this state, you know, it's a beautiful thing. And uh, in fact, she even commented on it herself when she saw it. She didn't see it from me, but she saw it from someone else that had my print. And she commented on how interesting it looked. And I've yet to see her in person. I would love to talk to her and say, here, let me give you a print here. I said, because I said, you know, you're an amazing artist. I says, and I caught you at a great moment, even though a lot of the stuff I loved from her and I, but this particular one that I sold to several publications stood out. And that's one of my other favorites too. What is it that you see in a photo that makes it stand out for you? What, what's sort of a prize winning photo in your eyes? I don't know. Photography for me, it's that's getting the, seeing the intensity in someone's face with the emotion, or if somebody's really working it and they're sweating or their hair's flying. It's just, it just creates such, to me, it just recreates such excitement and emotion. And the artist was so into his song at the time when he was playing, how hard he was playing it or whether it was something soft or whatever. You get it in their face, in their eyes, in their face. Do you still shoot? Do you, do you shoot shows? I still, I try. It's just really hard now because of the way the business is now. It's too corporate. They want to control everything. That's why they don't allow photographers sometimes to shoot whole shows or whatever the case may be, because they want to control that. They want to control the images. In some cases, these big artists, they want all your stuff. They want your film. You can't take it. And I, I won't give up my stuff. All my stuff is all owned by me. I don't, I didn't buy it. Nobody, you know what I mean? I didn't sign anything away. And that's what makes it difficult now. And they don't let you shoot the whole shows. As you know, you go up there and it's the old three song limit up there. And then they boot you out. Unless you're working for the artist. I mean, there are the exceptions where certain photographers, they shoot for the artist and they're there the whole time at the stage and stuff. But that's my only pet peeve about that is because they're trying to, they're trying to change the copyright laws too on photos and stuff. And I think that's wrong because it's someone's work. They would, they wouldn't like it if somebody tried to take their song and say it's public domain now, but I have all my stuff copyrighted, stuff that goes out, everything. I have a good copyright attorney, one of the best in New York that specifically handles photographers' copyrights. And they've really helped me and stuff and saved me from getting uh, ripped off, you know, because I, because nowadays with the internet, if you post something on a thing, it's gone, it's gone and a thousand people will have it and good luck in trying to track it down or chase the person down who did it. But if now if your image is copyrighted before you stick it out there and then it appears somewhere else and your attorneys can do it, they have a database and they can go out and search it out all over the world. And if they find it, they go after who uses it and that's how you collect your money. Do you have an agency for the purpose of like monetizing your archive or your prints or things like I that? I do have, I am, I'm with the cash agency. It's spelled C-A-C-H-E. So it looks like cachet, but it's pronounced cash agency. The people that run it, the guy that owns it and does it is a former employee of Getty and Michael Oakes. He saw the way they treat photographers now because Getty's terrible with photographers. They're like 70, 30, you know, the photographer really gets screwed. Cash was started to help the photographers like the old way. And the standard way is 50-50, which is normal. I've done real well with them. And I'm good friends with this guy. I've, been, I've known him for 25 years, 30 years. And so I have a page on there. And I've probably got about 350 images up. I, I constantly add to it. And I do. I, I constantly add to it. And then I deal on my own, too, with people. Because people know me now. So I'm, in fact, at the present time, I'm working with the Lightbox. They work with Showtime. And Showtime's doing, they're doing a few documentary film things that they're working with me and licensing some Phil Spector photos. So they're licensing some things for me. It's coming out shortly, in fact. So I try to stay busy and I've got, you know, I've got this stuff. I'll send you my book, my, oh, my photo you. book. I'll send you thank the book. You. 
Tell me about the book before we go. Let's get a, let's get a little plug in for the book. Is it still available? It's still available. It's still available. I'm trying to see if I can find a copy of it right here. I I have it. I'm just trying to. Wow. I don't want to. I don't want to walk away from the thing. Yeah, it's called Stolen Moments, and it's it's hardback. It's kind of a landscape format, and the cover front cover is a image I did of uh, Tom Petty. And then the back cover is a is a cover of the vintage uh, Whiskey A Go Go when I took it at the time when Oliver Stone was filming the Doors movie in 1990. Oh, and, it, and the side of the building is vintage, so it looks like 1966, and it has all the band's names like the Birds and the Bro Brummels, you know, and Love and stuff like that. So that's the back photo. And then inside, there's just a host of well, music, different people, some DJs, old DJs, but mostly artists, you know, mostly all the, the different artists and stuff like that. I, I threw in one off one that wasn't a music related one. It's a, a couple of really nice photos I did of Walter Cronkite years ago. Oh, wow. That's neat. <laughs> I yeah, that's really neat. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, of his. He was one of the greatest journalists, news journalists there was. And I met him years ago and I took all these great photos of him sitting at this table when he was doing a signing. He was very gracious and really nice. Wow, that's cool. But other than that, it's all rock and roll stuff. It's all music. It was published and came out in late 2019, and it's still for sale. It's still available on, on GeniusMusicBooks.com or GeniusBooks.com, one of the two. And also, I don't know if you've noticed what my T-shirt. Yeah. You'll ever be. <laughs> that's great. It can be ordered on the site because of the pig's tail. We have, there's four or five different T-shirts. There's the Stones, and then there's a Bob Dylan one. I think there's a Great White Wonder one, I think. And then there's a Beatles Whiskey Flat because that's one of the other LPs too. I also love the discography posters you guys made. The, uh, yeah, the discography one of the different a, a Great White Wonders. That's a really that's a really nice one. Yeah, those are really neat. Those are those really are neat. on the website too. Well, we'll make sure we link to all that from the episode notes. But I really I want to thank you not only for making time today, but for all your work over the years. This it's important work to document the music and the visuals and these artists and be as you said earlier if we're not doing that work it's it'll be gone and forgotten so thank you for that yeah i appreciate it I, it's the way i feel because once it's gone literally you know whether i take a picture of somebody or not but if you don't remember the artist and you don't do something to put it out there whether it's a story or a photo or whatever it's gone you know it's really gone and this next generation of kids they don't know anything about that unless they're hungry for history of music and they go into it. And yes, there are some kids that, that delve into the past and want to learn that and listen to stuff. But majority of these kids nowadays, everything is, how would you say it? Everything is, it's all just a quick, you know, it's all disposable, I should say. It's all disposable. Nobody takes it seriously. They get on their phone, they got something. And the next day they delete it or they, you know, they don't care. I mean, call me old fashioned, whatever, but it's important, you know, in a way. But yeah. Well, thank you again. And oh, pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Harold Sherrick. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, which is presented by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Our producer is Michael Donaldson, and our theme music is by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend, and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at spotlightonpod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.
Osiris. <laughs> 